This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. It's great to worship with you and with our high school students today and to be able to sing that God is our king and he is our anchor. He is the place that we want to run to in times of trouble. I don't know about you, but if you're in a season where it just feels like it's hard and there are sufferings and you feel like you have grown a bit weary, today's message is for you. We're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts looking at Acts chapter 14. And I have a great encouragement for you who are a bit weary, worn out and need encouragement, need courage and boldness to continue. So we haven't got no time today to be messing around. Grab your Bibles. We're going to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, we're going to pick up the story of Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey. They've left Antioch and they've been going around this area of Galatia, modern day Turkey, sharing the good news of the gospel from city to city and establishing home churches. Churches that you're probably looking around the room right now saying, oh, this is what a home church looks like with a leader and with a teacher. That's what Paul is setting up all over the area. And in chapter 14, we're going to see some of this opposition now, and then where he goes for courage and boldness, and then how he turns and encourages the church. It's my prayer that you'd be encouraged by this word today. So let's dive in. Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So they is Paul and Barnabas and they're kind of their MO, their strategy is first to arrive at a town and find the believing community, the the faithful who have the scriptures and have oriented their life towards God. They're looking for Jews and Gentiles who are God-fearing people. And there they can talk about the fact that if you believe in the Bible and you love the scriptures, then you're going to love Jesus because Jesus fulfills the scriptures. If you love your Bible and what God has done throughout history, you're going to be so excited to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. And so many we see here are actually receiving the gospel, this good news that Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the scriptures has come to forgive people of their sins and to bring them back into right relationship with God, their father. But verse two But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so they're meeting opposition. So it causes them to settle in for a little while, to not run away, but to settle in and teach for a longer period of time in both word and by God's grace, deed showing words and deeds of what the gospel truth is so that many would believe. And this stirs up the Jews further to want to actually stone them to death. And so it's in verse four, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they, being Paul and Barnabas, learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So having spent some time in Iconia, now they're leaving to the next city, Lystra, and then on to Derbe in this area called Galatia. And there they're going to go continue to preach the gospel. This opposition has not discouraged them. 
In fact, it has moved them forward to another town to make them available to the gospel. Now, this town is very different. It doesn't, doesn't say there's a synagogue in this town. In fact, what we find are unbelieving pagans, people that don't know the scriptures. It's funny, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the story of the gospel and how Philip and Peter met God-fearing people who were reading their Bibles or were tuned into God. And some of the conversation in my home group and perhaps in yours was around, well, that's great for people who are already oriented towards some spiritual things or have a, some sort of biblical literacy like we saw in America in the 50s through the 90s. But now with younger generations, they don't know who Father Abraham is. They didn't grow up in households that taught them about David. They never heard of Genesis. And so how do you help the gospel come to people who don't have any biblical literacy or orientation towards the living God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, here Paul enters that culture, a culture that we find ourselves in today. And his approach is maybe a little bit different. So instead of finding the synagogues, he begins to teach publicly on the streets. And one man who's a crippled, hears his message and responds. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So here's a member of their community that experiences an incredible miracle and has the attention of everyone now. Now, Luke is the author of Acts recording for us these historical events. Repetition is key. And remember back in Acts chapter three, Peter had a very similar interaction with a Jewish community at the temple where he met a cripple from birth who's never walked and healed him too. So the same God, the same spirit, the same gospel, the same message that was in Jerusalem with Peter is now in this pagan city with Paul. Repetition to show that the same God is on the move, crossing all of these barriers to invite many of diversity into the family of God. And this stirs up quite the reaction as it did for Peter. And so in verse 11, it says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, Lycaonian, sorry, that's a hard word to say, Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted other sacrifices with the crowds. They wanted to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as though they were gods. Now they're speaking in their native tongue here. And Paul and Barnabas don't, immediately know what's going on in this city of Lystra. And they call them Zeus and Hermes. Now to us, it's like, what is happening in this weird city? But here's some of the historical context. You ready for it? This city, Lystra, had an interesting epic narrative about itself. There was a Roman poet, an author of epic named Ovid, Ovid was born right before Jesus and actually died while Jesus was in his adolescence. And Ovid writes this incredible works that is well known in Latin and that we get to look at today, a 15 volume works of Roman epic narratives and poems named Metamorphosis. And in this epic narrative of Metamorphosis, there is an account what happened at this city called Lystra. And the account is that Zeus and Hermes, Jupiter, Mercury, other names for them, 
came down incognito. They hid their divinity, their godlikeness, and they walked around the city of Lystra looking for someone to receive them with hospitality. And they went to thousands of homes, finding no one hospitable to welcome them in until they came to a pauper's home. Someone who was married, Philemon and Basis, or Bassus, however you say it. And this was a married couple in poverty, that in their poverty, they welcomed them. They made for them a fire and fed them with what they had. And there, these two incognito that looked like people were really Zeus and Hermes, as the epic goes, revealed themselves to Philemon and Basis or Bassus. And there they showed that they were actually going to judge the city of Lystra. And so they brought them safely to the mountaintop. And there they flooded the city and destroyed it because of their lack of hospitality to them. But then they transformed this pauper's home into a temple and asked these two, this married couple, what would you want your reward to be since you were hospitable to us and didn't know that we were gods? And they said, let us be your priests. Let us defend your temple. And one last request, we love each other. Let us die together. We don't want to grieve the loss of our spouse. And so it said that it was given to them. So that was the beginning of this temple that we see here in which they're worshiping Zeus. And so when Paul and Barnabas show up and do something that no one has seen before, a crippled, known in their community, has restored his legs. What do they think? Do you remember what happened to us last time when the gods came down and incognito pretended to dwell amongst us and we paid them no attention and they destroyed our city? Let us now rush out and worship them. Let's recognize them. And so they call the priests of Zeus and say, they're back. Come bring these oxen, these sacrifices. And in the beginning, Paul and Barnabas, because they don't speak the language, don't really know what's going on. But Paul has seen a pagan sacrifice before. He's seen these rituals. And so seeing the oxen led towards him, he recognizes what they're doing and he tears his clothes of grief. This is a sign of sorrow and anger, of anguish. And he rushes into the middle and he stops this whole thing from happening. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, verse 14, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowds crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We're not Zeus. We're not Hermes. We're not in disguise and incognito. We are not gods. We are messengers of God with the gospel news. But you cannot worship us. We are like men. Same nature that you have. Now just imagine this for a second. It didn't go so well in Iconium. But here in Lystra, you have a community of people a well-to-do community of people ready to worship you. If the issue in Iconium was persecution, the danger here is pride. That perhaps for a moment you could step back and be like, hey, you know what, hold on a second. Hey, hey, Barney, this is like a pretty good deal for us, man. Like they actually think we're gods. They think we're, we're, we're Zeus and Hermes. We could really do some things in this city. It could go well for us here, but they don't. They don't try to absorb any of God's work to their own credit but pass it continually back on to who God is. Now remember Luke's the author and repetition is key. This is a drastic contrast to another story, just a chapter or two before in, in Acts 12, where the king of the Jews named Herod is listening to the crowds. He loves the crowds and the crowds are always telling him how great he is. 
And so he does the favors of the crowds. He actually kills James, the brother of John. And the crowds love him. And at the end of Acts chapter 12, we see that he takes his throne and he's dressed in his robes and he comes out and he gives this great oration of how great of a king he is. And the people respond. He speaks, he speaks like a God. The words, the words of a God. And he doesn't turn it away. He doesn't remind them that he's just a humble servant of God. No, he receives all of it. And God judges him for it. He actually strikes him down dead. And that's how Herod dies because he received in his pride what God, what God is only deserving of, the worship of people. So Paul and Barnabas are different. They recognize this should not happen. And they rush in the middle, tearing their robes, saying, we are men just like you. I don't know if you've ever had to describe that to other people. I know I have to convince my wife and my kids sometimes. I'm just a man. I'm just a man. I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm just a husband. I'm just a father. I'm just kidding. My, my family totally understands from a long list of evidence that I am nothing but just a man. But here's the thing. They have a message for this crowd. They don't just flee. They see them as idol worshipers in need of something in their life, something that's missing, which is the gospel, why they're here. Now, remember, these are biblically illiterate people. People don't know the stories of the Abrahamic faith. They don't know about temple worship at the synagogues. And so Paul begins a little bit different with them, but the message is the same. If you've wondered, how do I address neighbors, coworkers that don't know about Moses? If you're in high school and your friends don't have, have no clue who Goliath is and David is, then here's a probably a good starting point. Something like this in your own words. See what Paul does here at the second part of verse 15. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So here's Paul and Barnabas. They say, not only do we need to stop something, I want you to hear something. And this is the good news that we've come to preach, that you should turn from these vain things and turn to the living God. They don't use religious jargon with them. That word is repentance. Repentance is to rethink the way you're going and then to turn and go another direction, to leave these things and turn over to these things. They say simply this, you need to turn away from these empty, vain idols. See this temple of Zeus? It's vain, it's empty. This worship here culture that we've accepted, that's emptiness. That's the word vain. Vain is worthless, empty, nothingness. Have you ever done something like that took a lot of energy, took a lot of, took a lot of your resources? And at the end of the day, you came back home or maybe at the end of a week or a month or a long season of investment that didn't have any return on it. And you sit down and you say, well, that... That conversation, that investment, that project was a, and what do you say? Waste of time. That was worthless. You could just simply sub this word in. That was vain. That's what Paul's saying is these things that you have devoted your attention, devoted your time, and you've sacrificed your resources to, they're vain. They're empty. And you need to turn from empty, vain things that do not give a return, a real, eternal, lasting, deep return. 
And repentance is also turning from something, but turning to something, turning to someone, which is God. Turn to the living God. Now, interesting that he doesn't call God here the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac or Jacob, because they wouldn't know that. He just simply attributes this to the living God, the God of the heavens who gives rains and seasons and produces a harvest and brings gladness to your heart. That's what he brings their attention to because they're God-fearing people. Turn to the living God. And so help makes this connection is how God has revealed himself. He says that he allowed nations to go their own way, walk in their own ways, meaning not every nation got the 10 commandments, never didn't get the laws of God, but he didn't leave them without witness in which they'd be held accountable to. And the witness that they're held accountable to, you see this right here? What is the witness that they should respond to? Right here. It is the goodness of God. He has not left them without witness or without witness to you. By his goodness, by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He talks about the Lord's kindness. He says, you know, God, it's his kindness that should lead you to turning away from and turning into. Paul puts it to a letter in Romans that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And he points out in this little community, part of their commerce, remember they're outside of Iconium. Iconium was known as a rich and fertile grounds in which they were known for their wheats and their apricots and their plums. And part of their rich harvest gave them a great commerce where Rome built roads through their city. They made a name for themselves because of their harvests. And so here, what Paul does, it's so, it's so smart. He says, see all this harvest that you have, that everyone's jealous that you have. Remember where that came from? It came from rains and seasons, sunshine and soils that you have nothing to do with. Do you know where those came from that allowed you to produce the life that filled your stomachs and your hearts? That came from the living God in his goodness towards you as a witness. And these good things are a witness that they should turn your eyes away from these that you see here and put your gaze on him, the good gift giver. This is the witness, what we would refer to as general revelation, that God generally reveals himself, that people would have to respond to light, that God is the God of all creation. In that same letter where Paul is writing to this church in Rome, he opens up saying, the problem isn't that people don't know God. Everybody knows God. The problem that we have as people is that we have exchanged what we have known about God. Instead of giving him honor and thanks as we should, we have exchanged the good God for the good gifts. And instead of giving God, the good gift giver, our honor and thanksgiving, we have exchanged that knowledge. We have suppressed that knowledge, what we know to be true. And then we have started worshiping, idolizing the good gifts that he gave, things that we see and can touch and taste. And we devote our attention, we sacrifice our time to these things, these good gifts that we have idolized in our life should have only been a compass for us to direct our attention to the gift giver. And so he's calling this community back to believe in the living God, singular, not many. It's not polytheism, it's monotheism. There's one living God and everybody believes in God. Now you say, not everybody believes in God, Thomas. Have you never heard of this group of people called atheists? Atheists are people who do not believe in God. And I would say, yeah, I actually have had several friends who are atheists. 
And I would tell you, I think they believe in God. I don't think there's anyone that actually doesn't believe in God. And this is why. This is why I think all people believe in God, including atheists. The reason I think everybody believes in God, including atheists, is if you don't love him, you hate him. People who say, I don't believe in God, they hate him. They hate that I believe in him. They hate that I want to preach about him. They hate the fact that I want to share him with others. You know who they don't hate? They don't hate Zeus. They don't hate Hermes. They don't hate fairies of teeth and jolly red men. Do you know why? Because they don't believe in them. You see, when there's a visceral response, it's an indication that you're poking on a belief. When there's a visceral response, whether good or bad, it means you're poking at a belief here. And maybe the poke that's happening with those who say there is no God and so angry that you believe in him is that you're forcing them to come to grips with their trying to forget that there is a living God who causes the rains and the harvests and the commerce of our world. Imagine if Paul came to America, he probably wouldn't point to the fields, the harvest. He might look at the commerce, look at the industry, look at the music, look at the arts, look at the markets, look at the entertainment that you guys love. See, these things aren't bad, but they're good gifts that should direct our attention, not from them, should direct our attention from these good gifts, not worship these things, but to worship the true living God. He alone is worthy of our honor and our thanks. That's the direction these things should drive us to. Because at the end of the day, these, as good as they are, they're empty, they're void, they're worthless. They, they can't save my life. They really can't satisfy or fulfill my life for very long, which is why I have to keep consuming them. They were never meant to fill this void that only God can. And so the living God is the one that we must know. And maybe you've never known that. Maybe you are someone who's watching today and said, you know, there's a moral conscience in my, in my heart that is stirred up right now. There, it's, it's craving justice for people. It's craving things to be done right. I'm so tired of people lying to me. I'm so tired of hypocrisy. Do you know what that compass should lead you to? That heart of a moral right is a reflection of your father's heart who gave it to you. He believes in those things too, of justice and mercy of humility and honesty. And if you sense that, it's to drive you to recognize him and to turn away from these empty and void things that will come and go and worship, receive the living God. So that's his message. And he's barely able to restrain the people, but he does. And then guess who shows up? The people from Iconium. It's not good, okay? So verse 19, but Jews came from Iconium, or sorry, from Antioch and Iconium. This is just where he had the persecutions. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Man, how fickle are crowds? In one moment, this crowd of people are convinced that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, and they want to sacrifice to them as though they're God. And the next moment, they stone him, thinking him to be dead. They drag his body outside the city. This is why it's important that we, we don't follow the momentum of crowds. They're so fickle. Crowds love to find leaders, politicians, even pastors that will do the things that they want them to do. But as soon as these people 
stop doing the thing the crowd wants, even if the crowd wants to, them to allow them to worship them, the momentum of the crowd will turn and devour them. The, the people worth following are those that help you follow Christ. We don't want to follow the momentum of a crowd. We simply want to follow the ministry of Christ. And those that will help us to follow Christ most intimately, to follow Christ in all of our devotion in our life, to see Christ and to know Christ, to dwell richly in Christ. The leaders worth their weight in salt are those that continue to point you, not to themselves, but to Christ. They don't absorb the works of God and say, man, isn't it great that you have me as your leader? No, they, they just humbly point you. No, I'm just a messenger. What you really want to know is the living God. You want to know Christ. So thinking to be dead, they drag his body out. But the disciples gathered him. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When he, they had preached the gospel to the city, they had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had pointed elders, for them in every church with prayer and with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So notice this, their, their, their home base is Antioch. They're trying to get back there. And it's actually a short jaunt from Derby if you look on a map in modern day Turkey. But instead they backtrack the long way around to go check on everybody, to appoint leadership and encourage people. Do you know why they need to go back and do that? It's because our souls grow faint in the midst of hardship. Like Paul knows this first and foremost. He's been persecuted. He's experienced opposition. When he's experiencing these things, his soul can grow weary, faint-hearted. You see what he says? He goes back to all these churches and he strengthens their soul. Their soul. What is your soul? Your soul is your true self, your eternal self. You're made of body and soul. And your soul is your eternal self that dwells in this body in this age and will dwell in a new body in the age to come. And that soul can grow weary and tired. It can be faint-hearted, especially in the midst of hardships and persecutions. And so this young, small home church in different cities, Paul goes back to, to encourage their souls. Now your soul is a driving force of your life. And not caring for your soul has so many consequences. We must be diligent about feeding our souls. Most people in the world pay no attention to their soul, which is why they experience so many problems and frustrations and don't know why. We, we pay attention to our bodies and our minds. And we give no attention to our soul. But here are some indicators of how you know you're experiencing soul fatigue. I know this from my own life is when I'm experiencing soul fatigue, when the circumstances of my life are challenging and the circumstances in the people's lives that I love are challenging, and I, I shoulder some of those, I know my soul is fatigued and needs to be fed when small things become really big things. When I begin to lose my temper over small things like bad drivers, my kids whistling in the car, the way that people eat at a restaurant. When small things are becoming big things and I'm losing my temper over the small things, I can know that my soul is fatigued. I know my soul is fatigued also when immediate things become most important things. When the very thing in front of me is the most important thing. And so I begin to make rash 
harsh decisions, quick decisions that sacrifice long-term success for short-term gains. I know that my soul is fatigued when in the interior of my heart or in my mind is restless, is hurried and worried. These are indicators that your soul is starving and you need to feed your soul. It's important that your soul gets fed. There's a great quote from a pastor who simply says, if your soul is healthy, no external circumstances can destroy your life. If your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstances can redeem your life. It comes down to the condition of your soul. But it cannot be well with your soul if your soul is not well with God. It cannot be right in your soul if it is not right with God. And so how do you feed your soul? Well, Paul's doing that here. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, things that they've heard and they've known. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are are three things that we remember. We remember who God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged to do for us. This is what we're called to remember is who God is. Who is the living God, this good God that has let rains come down in my life like grace to feed my belly and my heart with gladness. That's who God is. In his kindness, he sent Jesus Christ to die for us, that we believe in him and have an eternal inheritance. What has he promised for us? Well, he's promised for us an eternal reward of his kingdom that all tears will be wiped and all pains will be mended. And so I don't have to be all spun up about my health here. I know that I'm secure in the kingdom of God forever. See, these are the things I must remind myself who God is, what he has done. I share with other people what God has done in my life to encourage them. And they share what God's doing in their life to encourage me. We must share this together. This is why I'm so excited that we are dedicating this fault very strategically to home groups, to church at home. And there are great leaders. As Paul appointed elders, there are great leaders of Calvary. I'm so thankful for the elders here at Calvary Bible Church who lead with such humility and grace and wisdom, dependence on God and his spirit. And I'm thankful for the over 150, over 150 leaders that have opened their home, opened their life, or opened up Zoom for others to join them virtually to help lead others in remembering who God is, what God has done, and what he has pledged to do to strengthen your soul. If you're in a home group, I would be praying for your home group leader. Share with them what's going on in your life. Pray for one another. We know that the season of the fall will come to an end before we know it. And look this Wednesday, Pastor Tom and I are gonna jump on a Wednesday update and we're gonna share what this fall continues to look like, why we're doing home groups, and then what it looks like to take those next steps of of regathering after the fall. And so you're not gonna wanna miss this Wednesday. But at the end of this is Paul's encouragement to the church. And I find this very interesting that these words are summed up to a young pastor named Timothy. This is the incidents of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, And this is what he says to his young mentee. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. He says, you, that's Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. That's what we just read about. You know all about that, Timothy which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If anyone ever tells you 
that you're not gonna be persecuted, meet sufferings or oppositions as a Christian, they're just lying to you. You will, but for steadfastness and hope and encouragement. He says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you have learned. Remember who God is, what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing whom, from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, what God has done. Remember this, Timothy which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, we're probably most familiar with this, but it comes out of the encouragement of steadfastness. All scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Remember what God, who God is, what he's done and what he has pledged to do. Get in his word, a steady diet here in his presence with his spirit. Allow him to remind you of these things. Share what God's doing in your life with others. Build one another up in your home group this fall so that for our encouragement, we'll be able to endure the tribulations, the hardships, the sufferings that are all too familiar to the Christian life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and this text. I pray now for the discussions that are about to happen. I pray that they would share their burdens with one another and be able to pray over one another, encourage one another, and come alongside one another. Help this church, Calvary, in Boulder, and Erie, and Thornton, to stay unified. Help our communities to see us as a, as a witness to the gospel, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we continue to pray for divine intervention into our country, that you would recapture the heart of our country, that we would turn from empty, worthless, vain things, and turn back to the living God. Amen.